0: Take your copy of God's word and open it with me this morning. Once again in the book of Exodus, but this time we're going to jump ahead to chapter 32. Exodus 32 will begin in a moment in verse 1. I want to talk to you today about the subtlety of idolatry. A few years back, I was in Cuba with one of our missionaries and we were walking on our way to visit a certain home when he said to me, Pastor Howard, when we get there, we need to have the idol talk. And I had no idea what he meant. (laughs) He explained to me and said, this family that we're going to visit, they've heard the gospel for some time and they say that they are ready to follow Jesus. But as you will see, like is the case for many in Cuba, their home is full of idols. And we need to explain to them that following Jesus means leaving those idols behind. That was the idol talk. Now, I've had the idol talk numerous times since then, not just in Cuba, but in other countries, including in the United States. And part of being here in South Florida with the mixture of cultures that we have, we see literal idols all the time. You might drive in front of a house and see an idol in the front yard. You might walk into a living room and see a picture of an idol hanging on a wall. And one of the fears that I have as I preach on this topic this morning is that someone would see or hear the title of this message and think oh pastor i don't have to worry about this one because there aren't any idols in my home i would never pray to i would never bow down to an idol we'll praise the lord for that but let me caution you not every idol fits on a shelf As I mentioned last week in Ezekiel 14, God spoke of the idols of the heart. Idolatry can be very subtle. It is a trap that sometimes a person can fall into without even realizing it. Last week, we looked at Exodus chapter 20, where God gave the Ten Commandments. And of the Ten, it is the second commandment, the one against idolatry, that is cited more often than any other of the Ten Commandments. Now, why is that? Perhaps it is because every person, whether they realize it or not, they will worship something or someone. You will either worship the God who created you, or you will worship a false god that you have created. After God gave Israel the Ten Commandments, God called Moses up to the mountain once again. And in the chapters that follow, God gave Moses instructions about worship, how his people were to come to him and worship him. He gave him rules and laws about the priesthood, about the building of the tabernacle, about the offerings. And isn't it interesting? Isn't it ironic that at the very same time, God was giving to Moses instructions for Israel about worship. At that very same time, what was Israel doing in the valley down below? They were building a golden calf, a false god, a literal idol. The Apostle Paul, when he wrote his first letter to the Corinthians, he actually referred to this story. You're going to find that this story in Exodus chapter 2, it is mentioned a lot in the Old Testament and the New Testament as well. But when Paul wrote to the Corinthians in chapter 10, verse 7, speaking of this story, he said to them, Do not become idolaters as were some of them. In other words... He says to the Corinthians, he says to Christians, look out. Don't think that this does not apply to you. Don't allow yourself to think that you don't have anything to learn from this story that you could never fall into this trap. And so this morning, we're going to look at chapter 32, at various verses throughout the chapter, and there are three things about idolatry that we learn from this story that we need to know in order to avoid it in all of its forms. And first of all, we need to see the deceitfulness of idolatry, the deceitfulness of idolatry. Look at verse 1. Now when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, Come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, "'Break off the golden earrings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me.' So all the people broke off the golden earrings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand, and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. Then they said,' This is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. I don't know about you, but when I read this story, I got to scratch my head and ask myself, how in the world does this even happen? I mean, you think about everything God's people had seen up to this point, how they had seen with their eyes the plagues, how they had seen the miracle of the Passover, how they had seen the parting of the Red Sea, how God had provided and gave them water and manna in the desert, how God had defended them against the Amalekites. They had seen the presence of the Lord descend on Mount Sinai. They had heard. God's voice with their own ears. And so how is it possible that after all of that, they would even entertain the thought of building an idol? In fact, the very words that we read in verse 1, that they spoke to Aaron, make us gods. It's absurd If you make a God, you can rest assured that it did not make you, and therefore it is not in reality a God. It's hard for us to understand how this could happen, but the Bible gives us some clues. There are some things that they failed to do, and by failing to do these things, they basically just opened up the door a little bit to idolatry. Well, what did they do? First of all, they failed to wait on God. They failed to wait on God. Verse 1 says that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain. One day became two, two days became three, three days became a week, a week became a month, and the people became restless. They started to ask, where is Moses? Why isn't he here? Why hasn't he returned? what is he doing? Why is it taking so long? And after a while, they just assumed that Moses wasn't coming back. And they just assumed that God himself moved on. It's interesting when you read this, at no point did they say that Yahweh did not exist. At no point did they say that Yahweh was not real. No, what they suggested was God is absent. God is not here. And let me remind you, God never told them how long they were supposed to wait. God only told them to Wait. And just like the Israelites, many times we get restless because we don't see God's activity in our lives, and so we start to ask some similar questions. We ask, where is God? Why is he not here? Why is he idle? Why isn't he working? But the truth is, if we would really open our eyes to see, God is at work all around us, and he's doing exactly what he said he would do. He's building his church, He's growing His kingdom. He's orchestrating history. He is preparing this world for the eventual return of Jesus Christ. But sometimes we open that door to idolatry simply because we fail to wait on God. They failed to wait on God, but they also forgot the works of God. I told you this passage is referred to many other places in the Bible. In Psalm 106, verse 21, it speaks of this story about the golden calf. And listen to this explanation that is given. In verse 21, it says, they forgot God their Savior who had done great things in Egypt. How in the world did this happen? The Bible tells us. They forgot God. They forgot the works he had done. You know, I don't think most of us appreciate just how quickly we can forget, just how rapidly this can happen. How long did it take? For Israel to forget, well, in chapter 24 of Exodus, it tells us exactly how long Moses was up on that mountain. He was there for 40 days and 40 nights. That's how long. Not near as long as I'm sure it seemed to them. But I want you to think about this. The amount of time in between victory and idolatry. It was not decades, it wasn't years, it wasn't months. It was simply a matter of weeks. And ladies and gentlemen, we can quickly forget if we're not careful, which is why it is so important that we continually count our blessings. We must repeatedly recite what God has done Something else they did to open the door to idolatry. They distorted the worship of God. They distorted the worship of God. Look at verse 5. So when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Then they rose early on the next day, offered burnt offerings, and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and, notice this, rose up to play. While Moses was on the mountain, guess what? Aaron was in charge. He was the temporary spiritual leader of Israel. It was his job to lead them and to guide them, and it was his job to stand up to them and confront them when they wanted him to make an idol. But I want you to notice what he did. He not only caved in completely, he not only did the very thing that they demanded, but then after he had made the calf, he had the audacity to say, tomorrow we will have a feast unto the Lord. Oh, a feast is exactly what they had. They gave offerings. There were sacrifices. They had what resembled a covenant meal. In chapter 18, the Bible says that there was singing. In chapter 19, the Bible says that there was dancing. Oh, yes, they had this great celebration. They did it all in the name of the Lord, and it was all one big lie. Acts seven thirty nine, referring to this story in the second part of that verse, it says this, and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt. They did not literally physically returned to Egypt, but the Bible says in their hearts they did. They were imitating the worship that they had seen back in Egypt. They took the worship of the one true God and they distorted it so that it was more to their liking. You see, that cow they created... It didn't give them Ten Commandments. That cow that they created, it didn't require their obedience. It did not cause them to fear. It did not require holiness. No, it was worship designed to please the worshiper, not the one being worshipped. And do you realize that we see this happening to the left and to the right, all around us in this world today, we see worship that is designed with the person in the pew in mind, pleasing man rather than glorifying God. And hear me very carefully, a worldly worship does not become godly worship just because you attach God's name to it the way Aaron did in Exodus thirty. Well, they distorted the worship of God, and when they did so, they opened that door to idolatry. Now, th- this leads us to a second thing about idolatry that we see. We see the deceitfulness of idolatry, but then we also see the destructiveness of idolatry. The destructiveness of idolatry. Look at verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Now therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation. How destructive, how dangerous was their idolatry? Well, it was so destructive that God was willing to destroy the entire nation because of it, and he would have been just to do so. But look at what happens in verse 11. Then Moses pleaded with the Lord, his God, and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians speak and say, he brought them out to harm them, to kill them in the mountains, and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce wrath and relent from this harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have spoken of I give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. For the Lord, or so the Lord relented from the harm which he said he would do to his people. Now, this is, for many, a controversial uh, passage of Scripture. There's a debate. A lot of people read this, and they ask this question. Did God change his mind? Was God really about to destroy Israel, but then Moses stepped in and persuaded God not to? No, the point of this passage is that God's anger was so hot, it was so fierce, he could have done so God is all-knowing. He already knew what would happen. He already knew that his anger would burn hot against Israel. He already knew that Moses would then pray for Israel. God already knew that when Moses prayed, his anger would be turned away and the nation would be spared ultimate judgment. And by the way, I just want to point something out here. The fact that God knew all of this was going to happen... Did not mean that it wasn't Moses' prayer that God used to bring it about? And if one man in Exodus chapter 32 could pray and an entire nation be spared, if that is so, don't you ever underestimate what your praying can do for your city, your state, or your nation." Do you realize that the praying of one man, of one woman, can change the course of history and can change the destiny of a nation? God spared Israel, and yet there were some very serious consequences for their idolatry. I want you to notice in verse 20, here's one. Then he took the calf which they had made burned it in the fire, and ground it to powder. And he scattered it on the water and made the children of Israel drink it. Well, that's an object lesson. (laughs) Why did Moses do that? Well, let me ask you this. What do we normally do with cows? We consume them. We drink their milk. We eat their meat. And so Moses said, okay, you want to worship a cow? He took their cow, he reduced it to dust, sprinkled it on the water and made them drink it. He was teaching them that the idol that they made was completely powerless to help them. Now, that's not the worst part. Look at verse 26. Then Moses stood in the entrance of the camp and said, Whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. That statement, whoever is on the Lord's side, in many translations, it can also be translated as a question. Who is on the Lord's side? You know, that was a pretty good question for Moses to ask in Exodus 32. I think that's a pretty good question for us to ask in 2021. Who is on the Lord's side? And we want to think that when Moses asked that question, of course, he's graciously giving them an opportunity to repent. He's graciously giving to them an opportunity to turn away from that idol. But we want to think when he says that, that all of the people, after all that they've seen, they're all going to say, I am, I'm on the Lord's side Notice it says in verse 26 that only the sons of Levi came forward. Only the Levites were willing to say, we will not bow down to that idol. That is when God's judgment fell. Now, folks, I'm going to speak openly. We don't like what comes next. We don't like this part of the story. God told Moses to tell the Levites, get your swords, go through the camp. Kill your brothers, your champions, your sons. Now, we're not told all the details, but more than likely, these were the instigators behind all of this. And there were... About 3,000 people who were executed that day. Now, if you struggle with that, maybe it's because, honestly, we don't understand just how evil their sin was. Somebody will ask, how could God do such a thing? How could God allow such a thing? I believe God would do such a thing because God knew something that they didn't know and we don't know. God knew that the ultimate consequences of their idolatry, if he allowed it to go unchecked, would be much, much worse than this. And do you realize sometimes this is how God will work in our lives? Sometimes God will allow us to experience the horrible consequences of our sin in order to keep us from having to experience something much, much worse down the road. That's exactly what you see happening here. And we need to understand just how destructive idols are, not just the idols that we see with our eyes or touch with our hands, but including those idols that are not made of silver or wood or gold. You see, those idols are destructive as well. The Bible repeatedly speaks of idols as being not just some physical structure that a man would bow down to and worship, but the Bible repeatedly describes anyone or anything that takes the place of God as an idol, anyone or anything that has our highest allegiance, our greatest affection. Let me give you some examples. In Philippians 3.19, Paul referred to those who, quote, whose God is their belly. Do you realize that according to the Bible, not making this up, food can be an idol? That's right. When Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.4, he speaks of those who are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. According to the Bible, pleasure, the pursuit of pleasure, can be your idol. Job referred to those who put their confidence in gold instead of God. According to the Bible, money can be your idol. And we could go on and on. Sports can be your idol if you care more about your favorite team's win-loss record than you do the things of God, it may have become your idol. I believe that technology can be an idol. I see some people, I think their smartphone has become their idol. I read where the average American will touch their smartphone 2,617 times per day. Can you imagine if we touch the word of God that often? Technology can be an idol. A celebrity can be your idol. That actor, that singer, that athlete that you adore. There are so many idols that are described in the word of God, so many of them idols of the heart. And you might be wondering, how can I recognize, how can I know if there is some idol of the heart that I have allowed to creep into my lives? Well, let me just share with you three questions, three very brief questions that you can ask yourself, and how you answer these questions will probably tell you whether or not there is an idol, or what kind of idol you might be entertaining in your life. And the first question is, who do you love the most? Is there anyone or anything that you can truly say that you love more than God who has your greatest affection? Whoever whatever that is, that's an idol. Who do you trust the most? And what are you placing your trust in your job? in your portfolio, in your tenure, whatever you're trusting in place of God, that's become an idol. Who do you fear the most? We see Aaron in this passage feared the people. Whomever or whatever you fear more than God, that someone or something has become your idol. So many different kinds of idols. And we must identify these idols of the heart, whatever they may be money, sex, power, greed, control, comfort, pride. We could go on and on and on. We confess our idolatry, and then these false gods, these idols of the heart, must be replaced by true affection for God. And let me tell you, God is already, He's always ready. He's always willing to help you to identify the idols of the heart and to forsake the idols of the heart if you will seek Him and ask Him. But we need to understand the absolute destructiveness of idols. And that leads to one final thing that I want us to see in the end of this story, and that is the cure for idolatry. I want you to see what is the cure for idolatry. Look at verse 30. Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, you have committed a great sin. So now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Let me ask you a question does Moses sound very confident in verse 30? I'm going to go up to the mountain. I'll see what I can do. Perhaps, maybe there's atonement for your sin, but I don't know. You know, that's a very revealing statement in verse 30. Imagine Moses the night before in his bed, tossing and turning. He cannot sleep, and he cannot sleep because he knows that there's a holy God up on that mountain, that he is the mediator who's got to stand before that God on behalf of Israel after what they have done. And he knows that He's going to have to stand before that God who said that he would destroy Israel. Now, verse 14 said God had relented, but I'm not sure Moses knew that God had relented at this point. He knows the people have committed, he called it a great sin. He also knows, based on what he learned in those previous 40 days and 40 nights that he spent with God up on the mountain, he now knows... That sin can be forgiven, but it must be paid for. He now knows that sin can be forgiven, but there must be a substitute. He now knows that one can die for the sins of others, but who will it be? And at some point, he had an idea he would offer himself. Verse 31 says, Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a god of gold. Yet now, if you will, forgive their sin. But if not... I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have written. Blot me out is just another way of saying, God, wipe me out. Moses said, God, wipe me out. I know that you are holy, I know that there must be atonement, I know that someone must pay the price, I know that you cannot and you will not look the other way and ignore sin, and so, since someone has to pay, let it be me. You know, it's interesting. A few verses earlier, God offered to kill the rest of the people and spare Moses, Now, Moses says, God, kill me and spare the people. And do you notice what's happening here? The more we study Moses, the more we see Jesus. 1,400 years, more or less, before Jesus was born, God gives us, in the end of this story, a beautiful, beautiful picture of the gospel. Moses presented himself... As the sacrifice for their atonement, he offered to be the substitute to pay for Israel's sin. Now, I'm not going to read the rest of the chapter, but to summarize, God said, no. God rejected Moses' offer. You say, why did God reject his offer? God rejected Moses' offer. Because Moses himself was a sinner. Moses needed someone to pay for his sin. But God required a perfect sacrifice. Someone who had no sin and therefore could die for the sins of everyone else. And you see, that somebody, it wasn't Moses. That was Jesus. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he made him, meaning Christ, who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You realize Jesus did what Moses offered to do in Exodus 32, but he could not do he became sin for us. When he died on the cross, there was a sense in which he became sin so that the punishment of sin would fall upon him. Jesus died for our idolatries. It has been said that when a movie is being filmed, there's a lot of work that goes into preparing any given scene. And many times when they're getting ready in Hollywood or wherever to film a scene, the primary actor will wait off stage until they're ready to begin. And they'll have someone who's called the extra. The extra is just some guy or some gal who, who comes in, who stands in place while they make sure that all of the props are in the right place and ready to go. He or she will just stand there while they test the lighting and make sure the illumination is just right. And then when all of the preparations have been made, and when they finally are ready to film that scene, the extra will leave the set, and in walks the real star. He or she will take their place, and the director says, Action. In Exodus chapter 32, God is the director. And God is preparing the scene, He's getting everything ready. Moses is the extra, He stands in place as a picture of someone who will come later. And when finally the timing was right, when everything was in place, the real star was born, Jesus came and was born in Bethlehem's manger, and God said, action. And Jesus is the one who was able to offer himself as our substitute. He can do what Moses offered to do. He dies in our place. He took our sin on himself so that whosoever will believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And that is the cure to our idolatry. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a good God, a patient God, and a merciful God because we are all idolaters. At some point, we have entertained, if not a literal idol, and some have done that, but if not that, an idol of the heart. We have worshiped, we have adored, we have pursued some false God in your place, someone other than you, and we are guilty. And so, Father, we thank you that you sent Jesus to do for us what Moses would have done for Israel, what he offered to do for Israel but could not do. You sent him to die in our place, to take the punishment that we deserved. And that is the cure. That is why we can be forgiven of our idolatry and every other sin we've committed. And God, we thank you that in Christ, it doesn't matter who we are or what we've done or how many sins we've accumulated along the way. In Christ, there's forgiveness. In Jesus, there is freedom And so this morning, I pray for each man and woman, boy and girl, in the sound of my voice, help us, God, to see what are the idols of our hearts, those things that we've allowed perhaps to, to creep in in some way, on some level. Help us to see and identify those things that we would truly say there's no one, there's nothing that we love more, trust more, or fear more than you. And God, I pray for those who are here today who need to come to Christ, who need to place their faith, their hope in the one who died in their place and rose again. God, I pray this would be their day of salvation, their day that they acknowledge their sin, their inability to save themselves. Moses couldn't save himself. We can't save ourselves either. That they would acknowledge their inability to save themselves and simply call upon the name of the Lord for mercy, for salvation. We thank you, Lord, because you promise you'll do it. You tell us, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So, Father, we pray you'd move in our midst, if there's even one, that this would be their day of salvation. And we thank you, we praise you for what you're going to do. We ask all of this in Jesus' name.